0: For 11 months out of the year, God seems to be painfully and maddeningly silent. For 11 months, it seems that God says so little about so much. The economy. Environmental disasters. New forms of mistreatment for our children in cyberbullying. A war that's going on a decade in duration now, with little end in sight, and larger threats looming further east in Iran and North Korea. And to say nothing of international unrest, there's all the unrest in my heart and in my home. And for 11 months, it seems, not much is said from heaven. And then December comes and it's Christmas time... ...and God gets wordy. But He says words like incarnation and annunciation ...and gloria in excelsis Deo. Words that don't seem to be too useful. Nothing we can live on anyway. All through the month of December... ...as we've been getting ready for our Christmas celebration... ...on Wednesday evenings we have been considering the birth of Jesus through artists' renderings of that event. Not everybody's liked it. We've gotten complaints from artists and church folks alike. There's no place for it, both groups seem to say. Years ago, art and the church used to be friends. If you were to see or hear any art at all, it would likely be inside the church. The church was the largest patron of the arts, and then in recent centuries, that relationship has soured, and art and the church are now rivals, if not bitter enemies. It's a relationship that needs healing on both sides, I think. The church needs artists because artists are the voice of our culture. They express our shared fears and worries and concerns. And they describe our brokenness and sometimes, very insightfully, they mourn for our brokenness and then sometimes, mistakenly, they celebrate it as if it's a virtue. At their best, artists tell us there is such a thing as beauty. And they make us want to look for it. And they stir in us the question, why are we so expert at vandalizing it? Most of the art that I look at or hear or view or read, most of it longs for redemption. Longs to know that there is forgiveness and rebirth. And it asks the question, can we save ourselves or do we need a savior from outside of us? Now on the other side of the relationship... Artists need the church because none of these questions make sense on their own. They only make sense inside a larger story. And it's always been the church's job to be the keeper of the story. It's always been the church's job to say, don't forget the story of God's dealings with humankind. And there are surprises throughout this story. It never ends up the way you think it will. When God draws near to humans, tragedy turns to comedy. Uh, If we could restore the conversation between art and the church, it would be a powerful duet instead of a petty little argument. So, remembering what the relationship used to be like, this evening we've chosen as our piece of art to consider, one that was commissioned by the church. The English sculptor Mike Chapman... ...was hired by St. Martin in the Fields Church... ...an historic church that sits very prominently... ...right on Trafalgar Square in central London... ...to create a sculpture. The piece was meant to celebrate the millennium... ...and so it was unveiled, it was debuted... ...at Christmas in 1999. Here's a picture of Chapman in his studio... And here's what the artist says of his work. I love stone. I love the sound of it under a mallet. The smell of it when it's cut. The color and the texture. Most of all, I love its permanence. Millions of years in the making. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of years in the form it gives me. I was taught by craftsmen, not artists. Men who learned the ways of generations of men before them. Taught to know and respect the material, to work it with honesty and a firm hand. And just to be sure that we don't misunderstand Chapman, let's hear him introduce himself. It's funny, he writes on his website, I'm not a Christian, but I've been blessed with a lot of commissions for the church. Maybe God's trying to tell me something. You see, even the artist is wondering at the perceived silence of God. Is he speaking to me? So what exactly did Chapman create? Sitting at the entrance to St. Martin in the Fields Church, there is a four and a half ton block of stone. And you're looking at the back side of it. It doesn't show up in this slide at all, but engraved in beautiful lettering around the middle of the block are the words of a familiar verse, a Christmas text from the first chapter of John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we were standing in front of the sculpture, in the position of the man holding the camera, We would see Chapman's representation of the word that was sent to dwell among us. And there emerging out of the face of the stone is the cut figure of a naked infant. There's no need to wonder who the infant is, but if there's any question or any dispute, the artist has titled the piece, The Christ Child. I love the question raised by the newborn infant Jesus carved from stone. Why stone? Why not something softer? It doesn't seem to fit. Maybe the stone is meant to speak of the hardness of the world into which Jesus gives Himself to be born. Maybe the stone shows the granite resistance that this child has to break through in His mission. Or maybe it's that the Word of God spoken and then sent in the form of a newborn isn't convenient. The Word of God is inconvenient, as inconvenient as getting washed and dressed up and leaving family celebrations and trudging through a rainstorm for a Christmas Eve service. Word of God is as inconvenient as a four and a half ton block of stone dropped in the middle of our lives or maybe what's being asserted is that this is the eternal child the eternal one who is permanent and he can't simply be brushed aside no matter how hard we may try now it's an unusual nativity because it's made up of only one figure if you look all around the piece, you're forced to ask, where are the angels fiercely singing? And where are the shepherds who have sprinted in from the fields and the dusty wise men just in off the road? Where's Joseph still shell shocked at all of this? And an overcomposed Mary. That's the way she's always made to look. An overly serene, overly saintly Mary. Where are they? All the other players are missing. Well, here's how the artist explains it. It seemed to me that a tiny life-size baby carved from stone in such an enormous environment would be the best way to remind us all of just whose birthday we were celebrating. But look at what the artist has done in the piece. Jesus demands all our attention and all our consideration. There's no room for confusion and clamor stirred up by other figures playing at the edges of this event. And if you look very closely, it's hard to make out at the bottom of the frame, but there's a step that's been built in front of the sculpture. You and I are being invited to come and look in and consider and wonder and maybe even... To believe. We are supposed to be the witnesses of this birth. We are called on to be the witnesses of God's gracious invasion of our world. We are supposed to be the other players in this nativity. Now, admittedly, this is not the way we are used to seeing the birth of Jesus presented. It's not sanitized enough for our liking. We like our infant Jesus to be more alert and not sucking His fist, but holding His hand up waving regally. And we like Him to glow, emanating a radiant light. And we like Him wearing a halo. And we don't like Him with an umbilical cord attached. That's the most disturbing detail of the piece. And it's also the most beautiful. The cord gives nourishment and strength and life. And this is important whether the artist intended it this way or not. But if you look at the piece, the cord trails off and is swallowed back into the block of stone. And it is not attached to Mary. Mary carried him... And the infant gestated in her womb. But Mary is not the source of his life. His life comes from some other source. His strength, his sustenance comes from something else altogether. Something that we stopped feeding on. Something that we stopped being nourished by. Millennia ago in a garden. The word of God. Jesus came as the living word, meaning that every word God has spoken and thought, every word he's conceived is percolating in the cells of Jesus. It's mixed in with his amino acids. It contracts in muscle reflexes. It fires in his synapses. It can't be separated out of him more than anyone before him or anyone after him. Jesus loved and trusted and believed the word of God more than anything else. And the strange presence of the umbilical cord in this piece speaks of dependence. It speaks of a dependence upon the word of God. So when we're called to stand around this sculpture as a strange, motley street version of the nativity which is pretty much what the first stable visitors were as well, were being asked, do you depend upon the Word of God? Does your life depend upon this Word? We're here tonight because God is neither unreachable for comment nor tongue tied He is not silent and He has spoken powerfully. And His Word isn't an idea that you can debate and argue down with superior logic and reasoning. And His Word is not an abstract concept that you can close up in a book and stow on a shelf when you tire of it. His Word came in a person. A person who can chase after us and interrupt us, and intrude on us, and harass us for God's sake. And to be rid of a word like that, all you have to do is despise it, and kill it, and smear it, and slander it, and even then it may not be enough. His word came to us as an infant, meaning that His word, even when it's hard, and it's hard, Is tender. His word came to us as a life, meaning you can build your life on it, you can inhabit it and dwell in it, and it will not mislead you. His word came to us as a newborn, meaning. Believing His Word is my new birth. Living on His Word, I am reborn. And not just once, but with every act of belief, I'm being made a new person endlessly. But what about the things that populate our lives? Does God have anything to say, anything at all to say about an economy teetering? ...on the brink... ...or the greed of big business... ...and the grift of big government? Or forget all that. Does He have anything to say more locally? Does God have anything to say at all... ...about the greed and grift of my heart... ...the poverty of my own twisted desires? Is there any promise that comes from Him... ...that He can replace my desires... ...with His own desires... Does He say anything at all about the devastation that I unleash, the oil slicks that I leave in my home, in my church, in my community? Does He say anything about turning the burnt-over desert of my heart into a lush garden of His beauty? Does He say anything about my grief and my loss and my sadness and suffering, mocked by an eternal hope that only He can give? Does he say anything about an unfathomable love that's poured out on me even when I'm at my most unlovely and unlovable? Does he speak about an enormous grace that smothers the immensity of my guilt? Does he have a cross shaped word of forgiveness to answer my fist and fang shaped sins? Does He say anything about adopting us as sons and daughters, given full inheritance instead of requiring us to be lockstep rule keepers to earn His favor? Does He say anything about a purification that's far greater than my pollution? And does He speak of a heavenly light, the light of His mercy that shatters the pitch black eclipse of My anger, my jealousy, my fear, my loneliness, my envy, my pride, my depression, my accusation, my victim's complex, and even my disappointment with and resentment toward God Himself. Does He speak to these things at all? Yes. 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 He's spoken to them all and even more. And what he has to say, he says in the life of Jesus. Every Christmas, we end up celebrating two things. When we gather together for occasions like this, we celebrate that God has spoken. And then, usually without knowing it, using the many forms of invented Christmas distractions, some of them religious, some of them not, We celebrate how we're not listening. Christmas means the perceived silence of God is imagined. God has not held His tongue. We've plugged our ears and stopped our hearts. And the gospel of Christmas is that God can graciously shatter the granite walls of our resistance with His words spoken in Jesus. And maybe this is the year, maybe this year, He'll overwhelm us with a need to hear and believe what He has spoken in Jesus. Maybe this year, what He says to us in the life of Jesus will come washing over us like a flood of glory and grace and truth. Maybe this year, We'll believe the word of God more than we believe anything else. And it will feel like coming alive and being reborn. God is not silent. He has spoken. Are you listening? Will you start? Merry Christmas. In the name of the One who made prophecies in ancient days. And the One who fulfilled those prophecies when the time had come. And the One who continues to unfold them for us and for our salvation. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, You are the living Word of God. All that He has spoken and thought, You embody meaning the word of God is to fill us too and we're to build our lives out of it and we're to find our lives in it and all that the Father has spoken in you press upon us our need to see and hear and believe as nothing else what you were dependent upon, what you fed upon and found strength in push all of us to feed upon and find our strength in as well, the Word of God's grace. And we thank You that the Word of God is gracious. If we were left to see ourselves as we truly are, uh, we would be devastated. We pray instead that You would impress upon us once again that we have been loved, sinners though we are, The love of God is greater than all of our guilt and offense. And this is the good news of Christmas. Now reach into us and touch our lives our hearts and breathe upon them and make them long to know and to be animated with this good news that in the presence of God we are kept and forgiven and made new and give to us the endless rebirth that comes only in Christ. And if you'll do all of these things, then we will give you thanks for them. And we ask it all in the name of the one who sent you, and in your name the living word given to us, and in the name of the Holy Spirit who causes us to believe and to find our life in you. In these three, in one, we ask all of this. Amen. Remain seated as we continue.